Luke 1.37, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. You know what it says? Nothing will be impossible with God. I love that verse, and I've been thinking about it a lot in light of our passage in Matthew today, beginning at Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, because we're going to look at two stories, uh, two historical accounts, and in each what, what makes them have something in common is we're going to see a situation that in the eyes of man was impossible. In, in the first story, we're going to look at a man that many humans would look at and say, that guy will never walk. That guy will never walk. In the second story, about Matthew the tax collector, we're going to see a man that many would have looked at and said, that man right there will never walk with God. In each of the stories, we're going to see the authority of Jesus in both of those situations. In each story, we're going to see Jesus tell a man to, to rise. In each story, the religious leaders are going to argue with Jesus. But in each, Jesus nevertheless is going to change a life forever. So with that in mind, I invite you to look in your own copy of God's Word Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. A paralytic, many would have looked at and said, this man will never walk. I'm going to be referring to Mark 2 and Luke 5. You can flip if you want. You don't have to. Matthew 9, 1. Getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Anybody know what he was calling his hometown by now, where his home base of operations? Capernaum. Capernaum. Yeah. Yeah, and may believe this incident happened at Peter's house where he had healed Peter's mother-in-law before because Jesus didn't have his own place. He didn't have his own place to lay his head. And Mark tells us that this was a packed house. There were so many gathered that you couldn't even get in at the door. And Jesus was there preaching the word. He was preaching the word of God. Verse 2 in Matthew chapter 9 says, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Mark tells us that it was a bed carried by four men, likely friends of the, the paralytic. But he goes on to tell us an amazing detail. Because they get, couldn't get in at the door, they had to find another way. And they would not stop. They would not turn around and go home. You know what they did? They climbed up on Peter's flat roof and as Jesus is there teaching, imagine if it were here. I, I'm up here teaching. All of a sudden, this roof starts caving in. All right, and imagine this, you're Peter, and this is your house. Like, I'm surprised that nothing's recorded that Peter said, because he usually says something. <laughs> or maybe they couldn't write down what Peter said. <laughs> maybe, maybe he's thinking, I don't know if Capernaum Family Insurance is going to cover this. <laughs> Whatever the case, how would we react in here if someone interrupted what we're doing by tearing a roof open? These four guys and the man on the bed got to be wondering the same thing as he's on his way down. You can see the crowd. What is going on? And how would Jesus react? Matthew tells us when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. These were great words of comfort, right? He starts with, if that guy was wondering how Jesus was going to accept this intrusion, right away he knew, take heart, be of good cheer. Not only that, my son, 
Okay, all, all fears alleviated right there. And then Jesus goes further. Your sins are forgiven. Now, I read this. I'm like, was this what the man and his friends were expecting to hear? Like, he's paralyzed, right? They're probably thinking primarily about walking, but he, he may have also had this in mind. You know why? Because Jewish rabbis throughout history had taught that no one could be healed unless all their sins were forgiven. Now, that leads us to some questions. Was this man's paralysis a result of his sin in his own life? We don't know. We know sometimes that is the case. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks of those who take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, falling sick and dying, verses 29 and 30. They were coming to the Lord's Supper as gluttons and getting drunk and leaving others to have nothing. Paul said, beware. Sometimes it is sin in our lives. Sometimes it's not. John 9, you remember the blind man along the road, the disciples want to say, who sinned, this guy or his parents? And Jesus was like, neither. This is so that God might be glorified. What we do know for certain is that all suffering, sickness, and death flows right out of the Garden of Eden where our parents, Adam and Eve, chose to disobey God and brought his curse. Okay? It says, when Jesus saw their faith. Does it say his faith? Only it says their faith, right? Think about what great friends these guys were. Not only did they bring him, but they would not give up until he was at the feet of Jesus. Some of you got people in your lives that you are praying desperately for to come to know Jesus as their Savior. I want to encourage you, don't give up. Don't give up praying. Don't give up witnessing. Don't give up showing them Christ in your own life. I want to tell you a story of an example of a mother who did this. You may have heard of the Scottish preacher W.P. McKay. He was born in the 1800s, and his mother raised him, teaching him about Jesus, but he hadn't received it. And at 17, he talked about going away to college. And she didn't want him to because she was afraid he was going to walk down a path of destruction. So she gave him a Bible. She wrote her name, his name, and a Bible verse in there. Gave it to him. And, and he went out and, and he did. He connected with the wrong crowd. In fact, one night as he was out in the middle of a drunken stupor, he ran out of money, took that Bible his mom gave him, pawned it for money for liquor. He became a prominent atheist in the city where he lived, a president of the local atheists club. Years later, as a doctor, he had a patient come in that had, had a bad accident, fell off a ladder, and it was fatal, had hours to live. And the patient said, please tell someone, my landlady, to bring me my book. Bring me my book. Doctor told the nurse, made sure the book got there. The man and put it under his pillow and then died. And Dr. McKay was curious as to what this book was. Was it his bank book, his calendar? He pulled it out and it was a Bible. Not just any Bible. It was the Bible his mom had written her name and his name and a verse in for him. He was emotionally moved. He tucked it under his coat, went back to his house, fell down on his knees, 
and realized that the Lord had pursued him that long and that far. He remembered a verse his mom had taught him, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And he surrendered his life to the Lord. In fact, he went on to become a Presbyterian preacher. Think of how long that mom carried him in prayer. Don't give up if you're one of those bearers. But I also think when it says their faith, it's not just the four who carried him because he looked at the man and said, your sins are forgiven, right? Our sins are not forgiven on the faith of anyone else. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So let me ask you, you can be brought to the feet of Jesus by godly parents or grandparents who, who talk to you about him and show you his ways. You can be brought there by the prayers of other people, their witness and their lives. But if you are to be saved, you must choose for yourself. Have you embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord? There's religious leaders watching all this. Verse 3, Behold, some of the scribes, the experts in the law, said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. They're talking about Jesus, right? Why? Jesus had said, Your sins are forgiven. And Mark tells us these guys also said, Who can forgive sins but God alone? They knew their Old Testament scriptures, Isaiah 43, 25, where God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. They were theologically correct in what they said, but they were missing who was in their presence. They thought of Jesus as a mere man, not the king, not the Messiah, not the God-man. Verse 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts said, why do you think evil in your hearts? There's a miracle within the, the miracle. He read their minds. <laughs> that should have opened, opened their eyes as well. He still searches hearts. He searches hearts today. Does he find faith in who he is in our hearts this morning? Verse 5. He says, for which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Now notice he says, which is easier to say, right? Because they're both well within God's power to do, right? He's God, <laughs> okay? But which is easier to say? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody in the crowd can prove whether it happened or not, <laughs> right? It's invisible, it's harder to say, get up and walk, because if this guy does not get up and walk right away, Jesus is shown to be a fraud. But to show them that he has authority over the root, which is sin, he's going to deal with the fruit, which is suffering and sickness, something they can see. One man put it this way. First, he pardons, then he shows his power to verify it. Verse 7, what happened? When he told the man that he says to them that you may know, verse 6, excuse me, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, 
rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Verse 7, he rose and went home. <laughs> One commentator with the last name of Bengal said that it's interesting because he was born there on a bed. Now he bears that same bed home. Imagine you had been there that day. Imagine you're his four friends. Here's this man forgiven and walking. Verse 8 says, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. We've seen this before. What power is in our midst? And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. You know what I love about this story? I love that Jesus did not come only to alleviate symptoms. He came to deal with the root. He came to deal with the root. I think about that. And I think about something an, an old preacher, Joseph Parker, spoke years ago. He said, the world's stream will never be pure until the world's fountain has been cleansed. We think we can cure the world by congresses and conferences. All these things have their place and their use, but until we get at the root and core and center and heart, we are as men who are throwing buckets into empty wells and drawing them up again. What is the root? It is man's sinful heart. What is the cure? The blood of Jesus. Do you see how bright that snow was? I was talking about with some guys doing snow removal this week. Woke up the, the morning after that snow, and I looked out, and that sun was blazing down, and you could barely look at it. It's so white. And you think about the power of God's forgiveness in Jesus. Psalm 51, 7, wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. There is no whiter white in the world than the glistening snow got to get to the root and that's why Jesus came have you trusted him as impressive as this account is we, we could do a sermon just about that I got to confess I am personally even more deeply moved by the second impossible case as we dive into the story of Matthew the tax collector Matthew, the tax collector, was a man that many in his community would look at and say, that man will never walk with God. It's impossible. Verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. Mark tells us he had another name. You know what it was? Levi, Levi right? We'll talk about those names a little bit more later. Mark also tells us he's the son of Alphaeus. There's a James among the 12 that was a son of Alphaeus too. So it's possible that there's another set of brothers that we don't think about that often. James and John, Andrew and Peter, Matthew and James. We don't know for sure. They could have just had a dad's name the same. Whatever the case, what does it tell us his employment is? Sitting at the, the tax booth. Now, I don't know anybody who's particularly exuberant about the IRS today. But we've got to calm down and admit that there can be Christians employed by the IRS, right? Okay? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, etc. This was a whole different level of what was going on here. What it meant to be a tax collector in this day. 
in Capernaum, in Israel, because it meant a couple things. One, you had chosen to side with the occupying Romans, either directly or indirectly, likely through Herod Antipas, who oversaw Galilee here. And Matthew had this tax booth by the Sea of Galilee. It was likely a customs booth, exports and imports. And one of the things people did not like about this is the empire chose people from their own province. He lived there. He was Jewish. You know, on a trivial level, it's like, let's say the Diamondbacks make the National League Championship Series this year, and you're sitting there watching with your friends from Prescott, and one of your friends who grew up in Prescott shows up wearing a Dodgers jersey. You may like, you traitor. <laughs> you grew up here. That's trivial, but this is a whole nother level. Matthew, you grew up here, and, and you're working for the hated Roman occupiers. And the amounts were all subject to the tax collector. These guys would buy their post from the empire, and they, they could set the rates pretty much as they pleased to line their own pockets. That's how they became wealthy. So you didn't know what the rate was going to be, 2.5% up to 12.5% in some cases, historians tell us. You might show up there, and there's historical accounts where tax collectors said, give me that good donkey for my donkey, which is much more inferior. That's on the books. There were accounts where they would receive bribes from rich people, so the rich people didn't have to pay their taxes. They were known to lend money at an impossible rate of interest. You can imagine all of this for anyone, but especially the, to the Jews. Not only are you a traitor to us, you're a traitor to God. Because in the Jewish mindset, only God deserves our money, not the Roman Empire. And here you are taking it from me. You a Jew. Jesus knew this mindset. That's why he lumped together the tax collectors and the prostitutes. That's how they thought. Matthew 21, 31, he looked at the religious leaders and he said, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. They, they went together in the minds of the Jew. It was so bad, they were seen as unclean. They could not be a witness in court because they're liars. They could not worship in the synagogue. They could not worship Yahweh with the other Jews. And you think about that, how Matthew's career choice must have cost him his reputation and his relationships among many family and friends. I mean, I imagine if, if a teenage girl, knowing that fathers usually arrange marriages and wanted to plant a seed in her dad's ear, came home and said, hey, I kind of like Matthew. That's when mom and dad look at each other and they say, where have we gone wrong? It, it was that kind of situation. And Matthew, being in Capernaum, had probably heard of Jesus, maybe even heard him in person, though being who he was, he likely would have stayed on the outskirts of the crowd. Today, he might be the person that hesitated to come on Sunday morning, right, because of his life. And this day, Jesus began walking to his booth. I wonder what people thought as they saw Jesus walk into his booth. You think about James and John, right? Sons of thunder. Are they like, yeah, Jesus is finally going to get them. You know, they like calling down fire from heaven and stuff. 
what's Matthew thinking? Oh, boy. <laughs> and what does Jesus say according to Matthew 9? Jesus said to him, follow me. Follow me. You know, Matthew and maybe even Jesus' current disciples, like, come again? Did, you know, check the hearing aid here. Because he's the last one many of them would have picked to follow Jesus. And he rose and followed him. What do we read next? Verse 10 says, as Jesus reclined at table in the house. Now, we can see that Matthew was a humble man by the time he wrote this. He just says Jesus reclined at table in the house. But Luke tells us it wasn't just any house. It was Matthew's house. And it wasn't just any meal. He calls it a great feast. Matthew put on a great feast at his own house for Jesus. And, and, and who did he invite? Verse 10 says, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. The sinners are those, that the Pharisees call that people who wouldn't or couldn't keep all of their traditions. And we know because there were tax collectors there, there were likely people there who were involved in heinous sin. But there they are with Jesus and his disciples. And I think about that, and i got to ask us a question. If you've been a Christian, especially for a while, I pray and I hope you, you have not cut off all connections with those who don't know Jesus, have you? You don't spend all your time with God's people, do you? Do you have any avenues into the lives of family and friends who don't know Jesus? Because we would do well to follow Matthew's example here. I love that I've talked to several who have moved to our area recently and go to the church and they said one of the first things they're praying about is, Lord, help us use our home as a, a beacon in our neighborhoods, a place of welcome for our neighbors. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Who, who Lord, could I invite to that movie in a couple of weeks? Just, just this one example, okay? We don't want to become like the Pharisees. Because what do they say when they see this gathering? Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why'd they say that? Because they would never taint themselves in such a way. But how very encouraging to you and I that Jesus was right there. You may be like Matthew this morning, kind of hanging out on the fringe, maybe in a little afraid to come in, but here's this Savior eating with tax collectors and sinners. Verse 12. They said that to the disciples. They didn't have the guts to say it directly to Jesus here. But Jesus is going to answer them direct. Verse 12. When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Not only physically, he's talking about spiritually sick, the sickness of sin, right? Let me ask you a question, though. Are there any well apart from Christ? No. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned. <coughs> And fall short of the glory of God. 
that included these Pharisees. But I think about these guys and I think about like I, I was reading about the, the movie Ray Charles that came out some years ago and that Jamie Foxx to play that role actually had his eyelids glued shut so he could play the, the blind Ray Charles without opening his eyes. And I, I read that and I'm like, man, that's what these Pharisees had done. They had glued their spiritual eyelids shut, and the glue was called self-righteousness. And it kept them from seeing a couple things. Number one, their own need for Jesus, and it kept them from having compassion on other sinners who needed him just like they did. Do any of us have our spiritual eyelids glued shut this morning? Come to Jesus and ask him to open them. It's good to be at a place where we say, I know I need a Savior because it's sinners that Jesus came to save. Do you know your need for a Savior? Have you come to the cross and received his forgiveness and grace and mercy? Do you have compassion on other sinners? Verse 13. His final words in this account. He looks at these religious leaders and says, go and learn what this means. Now, this would have been insulting to these guys. They were experts. And they probably said that many times to their students as they looked at the Old Testament. You don't get it. Go back and read it again. You don't get it. Go back and read it again. And here Jesus is looking at the experts and saying, you go back and read it again. Because Hosea 6, 6 he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You've got to understand the context. Hosea was a prophet speaking to God's people at a time of great immorality, idolatry, murder, uh, charging great interest to their brothers and sisters, lies, hatred for one another. But, oh, they still came to the temple and offered their sacrifices and when, when God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, what's he saying? He's saying a right heart means worlds more to me than your empty rituals. They have nothing to do with what's going on inside of your heart. And part of that right heart includes mercy. Not only that, the, the very fact that there were sacrifices at all, shouldn't that have told them we have a merciful God? I mean, were it not for his covenant love and promises, he did not have to have that system to cover their sins. He would have been right to destroy them time after time after time. But every time they offered that lamb, they thought, wow, the mercy of God, I should reflect that to other people. And not just that, but on this side of the cross, we realize that every one of those sacrifices pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice. The one who is standing in their midst, right? How John said it, John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus goes on. He says, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke adds the words to repentance. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know what repentance is? 
It's a change of mind that leads to a change of life, what we call the the fruits of repentance, the, the turning around. And I want to talk about three F's. We hear about the first two a lot today. The third one, maybe not so much. Three F's involved in following Jesus. Forgiveness. Oh, thank the Lord. Sins washed away. Second, freedom in Christ. Thank you for that freedom. Here's the third one you may or may not hear often. <laughs> Forsaking of the old life. Forsaking of the old life. Luke makes this clear for Matthew. Luke says in his account, Luke 5, he says, leaving everything, he rose and followed Jesus. Think about what that cost, Matthew. Many have talked about how the fishermen could go back and fish. They did sometimes. Matthew, you know, as soon as he left that booth, there was someone else ready to swoop it up. This was an I surrender all moment to leave behind that life of sin and follow Jesus. I think about this and I I think about a story I read this week. Can you imagine you went and bought a house, a large house with several floors and an attic and multiple doors and all the doors are locked and you buy the house and you get in there and you look at the keys that the previous owner gave you and they open most of the rooms but not all of them. You go to the owner and he said, oh, I don't want you having access to that room on the second floor down the hall and I don't want you having access to that dirty attic. What are you going to say? You're going to say, I bought the house. It's all mine. Give me the keys. And the man who wrote this used that as an illustration. Listen, you know what Paul says to the Christian? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Do you or I have any keys to any rooms, any sin that we cherish in our lives that we say, no, Jesus, that's mine. Matthew's example tells us, give him all the keys. Forsaking of the old life. But you think, why would Matthew forsake all he had worked so hard for? I mean, he probably had a three-ox garage, man. (laughs) Why would he do it? Well, think of the hole in Matthew's heart that his life of sin must have left. First, a God-shaped hole. We're all built to worship God. That's where life is found. The emptiness that came with that. Not to mention the hole left by all those family and friends who had forsaken him because of his career choice. He's he's unclean. And here, he watched Jesus lay aside any and every possibility of a good reputation with the religious leaders of his day, all for a relationship with Matthew and his friends. No wonder Matthew left it all. We love because he first loved us. I think about his two names here and the meanings help me grab onto what happened in this story. Levi means attached And I remember that because I think about skinny jeans, you know, Levi's skinny jeans. You know, somebody wears skinny jeans are like attached to their legs, right? (laughs) He's attached. You think about this man who was attached to his sinful pursuit of wealth. It's not the wealth itself. It's the way he chose to pursue it. 
Now he lays aside that attachment and attaches himself to the Savior, Jesus Christ. What are you attached to this morning? Is it that old life or is it Jesus Christ? And I think about the name Matthew, gift of God. That's what that means. And I think about how anybody that went past his tax booth and knew what his name meant, yeah, right, (laughs) gift of God, my foot. But Jesus, in his grace, saw that this man was a gift of God. Because as many have said, when Matthew left his tax booth, he took one thing with him. You know what he took? His pen. He wrote the very words we're studying 2,000 years later in this gospel of Matthew. What a wonder. I don't think Matthew ever got over that wonder. That Christ had turned him into a, a missionary. And later on, he recorded the words of Jesus in Matthew 19 about the the rich young ruler. And I got to imagine as Matthew pondered these words, he thought about his own life and said, thank you, Jesus. Listen to what he said, Matthew 19. I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Even if you're a Matthew this morning. Last but not least, I think he clearly saw that day the difference between King Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. He saw the grace of God in Jesus for, for sinners like you and like me. Because Jesus would say about those religious leaders, Matthew 23, 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. You see that in this story, don't you? They just heaped on their traditions, but they wouldn't dare meet with someone to help them. What about Jesus? They wouldn't lift a finger. What did he do? Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you realize that grace is for you? I want to close with the words of W.P. McKay, the preacher we talked about earlier, saved as he found the Bible his mom had given him. He wrote this. He said, Jesus did all the saving work. He brought the cross to our level Get saved by looking to him. Lie down as wounded, helpless, ungodly sinner and look away from yourself to Jesus. Have you done that? That's his invitation this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. He showed us what a true shepherd was all about to the point where he laid down his life for the sheep. Think about the act of pardon at the cross. Even for those who nailed him there, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Sealed by an act of power as his tomb was empty that Sunday morning. We praise you. And I pray that anyone here who has not 
come to the foot of that cross. You draw them home. Help them see that sacrifice was for them. Just as it was for Matthew. That you took their sins to that cross and paid the price. That you rose again for their freedom. That eternal life is waiting. They will embrace you and trust as their Savior and Lord. As those of us who believe prepare to remember that through communion, I pray that we would be those who follow in your footsteps with a heart of mercy. That we would be those who who not only embrace the forgiveness and the freedom, but forsake the old life. And with the help of the Spirit, gain victory over that flesh as we look forward to that day where even the very presence of sin will be a thing of the past. In Jesus' name, amen.